Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm Brandon Laws, your host. And in today's episode, I have a conversation with Jason Troy. He's the author of Social Wealth, How to Build Extraordinary Relationships by Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Lead, and Network. And I love this book. I love the conversation I have with Jason as well. This book actually reminded me a lot of a book I read many, many years ago, and hopefully many of you have as well, but How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think it's written in a way that you could easily grab onto concepts. I think it's written more for modern times, obviously, because that book was written a long time ago. But I think what we're finding ourselves in a situation right now where people are behind computers, people are behind chat and Slack and whatever else, and interpersonal relationships are becoming more and more challenging. People get social anxiety, and some people love to work by themselves. And some people are just lone wolves in general. And I tend to be one of those people where I get wrapped up into my own work. And sometimes I think I'm better off going at it alone. Whereas, you know, that connection is really important, you know, not only for just the way I feel and being connected to something bigger than myself, but to be connected with other people and build relationships. And so Jason talks a lot about this idea of social capital and how to continue to build the social wealth. I love this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. And what I hope you do, because I'm just going to call action to this, listen to the podcast. If you like what you hear, absolutely go get the book. But what I want you to do is I want you to work on it. I want you to not only work on it for yourself, but I want you to go back to your team. And I want you to implement some of these things. I think we all need to build more social capital so that we are more trustworthy. We work better in teams and we're more comfortable doing it. So that's my piece of advice for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jason Troy, the author of Social Wealth. Hey, Jason, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's great to be here and to speak to your fantastic tribe. Your book, Social Wealth, How to Build Extraordinary Relationships by Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Lead, and Network, I haven't read a book like this in a long time. It's very useful. It's practical. I'm really curious why you wrote this book. Who'd you write it for in the first place? Is it where we're at as a society right now? Are you coaching clients a lot and you're realizing that this whole idea of social wealth is really important? Like, Give me the background on it. Well, originally when I started doing this, and I think everything builds off of everything else, right? And I think in the HR world, it's how do we create a great experience for people and humanize it, right? And it's all about the connection and belonging. And I've been following Brene Brown, and I was starting in my coaching career, and I was finding the biggest problem people had was just in relationships in general, right? I mean, it wasn't just like in terms of their team, but externally and everything that they were doing was really problematic because of the lack of these skills and understanding how to do them. And then as I was looking at books and other things out there, there really was a dearth of sources. And the book that I read a lot was Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. And yeah, even great book. that book, it's a great book, but there was a lack of practicality of how do I actually take it and make it real. Sure. And the reality is he didn't write that book for you to go network per se. He was writing that to build his consultancy. Mm -hmm. He didn't use it the way that I had thought about it, but I took that book and other things and created and did a lot of like things on my own 
and realize the challenges people had were just their lack of vulnerability, connection, really building meaningful relationships. And then as you talk to people who were like introverts and people who were shy or ambiverts, they're the vast majority of the population. The extrovert, the true extrovert is a part of it, but it's a minority. And they're all having problems and they want to have more engagement with people and meaningful relationships. It's just painful for them to get from starting the conversation to the point they really want to be at where they don't have to have small talk and other things. So what people do is they just don't because they have social media and other ways not to do it now. So I really wanted to write a book for anyone that could get to that point where they could create much better business relationships. And obviously the personal part of it, they go hand in hand. And obviously it helps my own clientele and people I'm working with. So it was doing it. And I wanted to make it more of a blueprint and a how-to book rather Mm -hmm. than a 300 page book and me telling stories and me, well, trying to impress people about all the things I did and everything else because no one has time. And at the end of the day, all the story is, is trying to convince someone and give them evidence these things are going to work. And if you read this stuff and you try it, it's going to work. So I'd rather focus on that. And the people that need all this evidence and all these stories about all the other people, I felt like, well, they're just using it for like Netflix. They want it to be entertainment, right? Like education entertainment, not like something real. And so I tried to focus the entire book as much as I could around being practical and about doing what other people did. And then on top of that, I spent a lot of time researching and interviewing constantly, right? And talking to experts and doing literary research and trying to stitch together all of these things. So it was both from a scientific point or research-based and also there were art in this as well as I talked to people from a lot of different areas that had been doing this and tried to put this all together for people in a way that I knew that if they actually did it, they would be successful. When I was reading the book, because you were talking about the utility value of this book and like having a how-to, and I was reading, I was like, oh, I always go back to the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I think I've read it probably 10 times and listened to it on audiobook even more than that. And there's a lot of similarities between that book and yours. Of course, yours is very modern (laughs) to today's world. Whereas, you know, Dale Carnegie's books is written for that time period. And so the language is much different. But the practicality of it in terms of like, okay, smile more and, you know, get people what they want and things like that. I think your book is structured in that same way. So if if listeners have read that book, I think they're really going to be able to pick this one up and get a lot out of it to be able to use it in you know today's modern world. Yeah, it's really interesting that smiling too, just as a little side point. So one of the things I found up doing by asking people who are really good salespeople, and I got a quite a few people that told me that they had been told in a work for them that when they're going to client calls or something, they try to smile when they're driving in the car as much as they can until they get there because they notice yep. they're much more positive, they smile more in meetings, and they're actually much more effective, right? So A lot of the things in the book, some of the things I tell you, like, okay, here are the things, how to do it. But the underlying things, a lot of that I got from people that had been really successful and things that they had been told that they had implemented, right? And that, to me, all these things are just like tools and they're useful. And once you understand it, right, then your unique style can come out from all this stuff. And I think the other thing I I think it's worth mentioning is that, you know, 
I'm not a proponent of someone like having to build a thousand relationships and having to keep them up, right? There are people that that's what they like to do. But the problem today is that I used this when I was writing the book and I'll use this now. So if you had a chance to pick out your best friend or your best friends out of a room full of people and you could just interview people, would you choose a room with five people or a hundred? And everyone said, right? So like, you know, we'll say, we'll see, we'll say a hundred because I can choose. Really? Yeah, because if you only have five, you're going to miss 95 other people. And, and a lot of it's a numbers game. Meaning well, that- I guess for most salespeople, yeah, it is a numbers game. But for me, if I'm really trying to build deep relationships, how do you have intimate conversations with 100 people? Well, I mean, I mean if you could just pick one person, right? It could be your sure. best friend. If you have, oh, if you have 100 people, yeah. if you have 100 people, your choices are much greater. And yeah. you can pick the people that are actually best suited for you. But if you have That's limited conversations with the rooms of people, you just don't know the people. Because then you think, well, this is the only choice I have. So at default, I'll make one. And so this is what happens a lot of time with people is their relationships that are default, not out of the people that are best suited for them. So the more interactions you have, it actually serves you more to find the people that are best for you, right? And that could be anything, right? That can be for hiring, that can be for interview, like all these things. But we have to get out there and interact with a certain number of people because just like soft skills, you have to build these, and most of these skills are all learned behaviors, right? Yeah. And even extroverts, the problem tends to be is they think they are great at doing all these things, and they are to a point. But then there's a lot of blind spots and holes that also hold them back. Let's talk about this idea of social wealth and building social capital. Is this a term that you created? Is, have you heard it a lot? I haven't really heard it a whole lot. But like, what is it exactly? And do you think people have a problem with building it? Like, do they have more social wealth than, let's say, 10 years ago? Or is it much more depleted? Well, the concept was, is that you can think about social capital as like relationship capital, right? And it is the most valuable form because one example could be you'll get the best job and you'll get the best starting salary through networking with someone you know, versus Mm -hmm. just a job board, right? So... That part of it's there and everything that you do is required to build these relationships. And when you think about social capital, really the thing that is extremely valuable and it is very hard to do no matter who you are or what's going on is that every person you know has people behind them, right? That they know and all of those people are valuable and can provide resources to you. And you can help them too as well, right? This goes both ways. I mean, it is about making an impact and finding meaning. So to me, it is that full breadth of really lies. That's what creates our life that we live, right? Because no one has a tombstone and said they worked a good life, right? I mean, it's about the impact and meaning that you can make both personally and professionally with people. Yeah. I was thinking about as as I was trying to relate it to my own life. And I've heard the saying before, it's like your income becomes kind of an average of the people you spend the most time with. And I would say the same is probably true about relationships too. Like your success is probably dependent on who you're around because you're sharing resources, you're creating value with one another. I mean, do you agree with the way I'm kind of framing that up? Yeah, definitely. And it's a long game too. And that's one of the challenges with 
deciding to do things like this or not, the challenge is that you can get immediate payoffs for things, but a lot of the times these things have a way of coming back to you over a lifetime. So you can't be short-minded and cited about the value of doing all of these things because there is not always going to be an immediate ROI on everything that you do. And sometimes the ROI might be harder to find and see, but it will come at some point or another because having these skill sets and building them up, having relationships, right? Having ones that you may have met someone for the first time, and maybe you haven't seen them in five years, but you've seen them at least once and you aren't starting from cold, right? Is something that can be really helpful and important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's interesting. You said earlier about kind of hiding behind technology and it's like we're so connected nowadays, but it seems yeah. like we're so much more isolated. You know, why is that? Is it just because of the tools? Is it the skill sets of actually talking to people in person? Like, why are we more isolated? You can't well, just say it's technology. It seems like it's a combination of things. It's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I think part of it is if you take a look at a person in 1950, they had no choice but to get out and talk to people. Yeah. And their life, was, their life was dependent on them doing a lot of this stuff. So there was an urgency and there was a requirement to do it, right? You're forced to do it. So of course, you're going to get better at some of these things because it's a repetition and these are learned skills and learned behaviors by doing that. Now, you didn't have books and other things so there were limits on how good you could get. Right now, the challenge is you can opt out of doing a lot of stuff. And you misuse resources because the point of social media, the point of LinkedIn, the point of Facebook, the point of all of these things is to connect with people online, right? But it's to take them offline and interact yeah. with them as a human being. Because that's where the gold is, right? that's where all this magic starts to happen, right? Or connect with them in person, right? Like you could do in a lot of hiring situations by building a pipeline. You might meet someone and you may not hire them, but they might be the number two candidate, right? Meaning they didn't get the job, but they were still really good. There's just no position. Well, if you continue that conversation online with them and find ways to interact, you can keep that person in your pipeline and then activate them when you have an opportunity. And there's a probably a huge chance you'll be able to actually hire that individual, right? So there's a reason for using everything, but you have to use it for the intended yeah. purpose and not use it as a crutch or misuse it. And that's what ends up happening. And I think that the other part of this stuff is that the hard skill, soft skill thing overall is a pretty massive conversation that's going on now across the board, because as you look at, in Silicon Valley, right, I've talked to a lot of HR people, a lot of hiring managers, and by far now is popping up in the conversations is the most important skills they're looking for is the ability to communicate. There's a lot of times yeah. you're dealing with people that have no ability to communicate, and they can't work in teams, they can't collaborate very well. And those skills are required for you to build great relationships, but they're hard to get because a hard skill we can go and watch a video online or take a course and get better at it. And you have to continually do that. Like you could be a better software engineer. You could do this or that, right? But a soft skill requires you not only to listen, to take it in, but it requires you to practice it and get the experience and then ask questions and come back. 
So it is much more involved process to do mm -hmm. all these things, right? And so that's another challenge that creeps up is that we're not investing in these skill sets across the board and doing them all the time. And in creating this false narrative that, oh, well, that person is better at it than me and I can't get better at it, right? Which mm -hmm. is completely not right and inaccurate. It's just much harder to do it. Yeah, I think people got to put in the effort to actually connect with people because, you know, as you're saying, like people hide behind the technology, they kind of use it as a crutch. But I was thinking of like, and you probably run across this all the time, but people who will do the kind of the spray and pray method on LinkedIn, where they just connect with a bunch of people, but really have no intention of probably meeting in person or actually doing the work. It's more just like, oh, look, I've got 5,000 connections and I'm just going to try to connect with as many people as possible without actually doing any meaningful connection. And that just drives me nuts because they have no real intention of yeah. actually making a real friendship or business connection or whatever it may be. I just absolutely crazy to me. It's a false sense of having connection and belonging. And what happens is, is then you get a rude awakening when you're in a crisis of some kind or another, or you have some really significant challenges. Then you look around you and you realize that you built your life on a house of cards. Right? Yeah. And this happens in a business world in terms of teams, right? Because when you look at the fundamental things of like why people go to work every day, right? I mean, even looking at that for an HR professional, like people talk about perks. And I mean, like last year, the cost or the increases in cost for organizations went up 32% because of perks. And the job hopping is continuing, right? And people are finding other jobs because when I talk to them, at the end of the day, what they want is they want to create a meaningful impact and achieve something on a daily basis. And they want the people around them to care about them and them to trust, right? It's not the rest of the mm -hmm. thing, right? Well, that's hard work. That requires everyone in a team to get to know each other and to spend time understanding their experiences, their heartbreaks, their breakdowns, their successes, their pet peeves, how they like to communicate, right? How they like to interact. And so if you don't sit down and understand that about all those people around you, right? You can't work with them very effectively. Mm -hmm. My favorite quote from the book, and I shared this on, I think it was like my Instagram page, but the quote says, if you think you can go it alone, you're bound to be disappointed and you will eventually hit a dead end in your life, end quote. And to me, this is really impactful because there's so many times where I'm like, oh, I could just do that on my own. I don't need other people. But doing things in a vacuum, I have really come to learn that I can't get as much done as when I interact with other people. Because when you have conversations, so much comes out of just the conversation. Yeah. Whether it's one on one or with a group of people, like ideas are floating, you get energized. And I think, like, you know, working by yourself is fine. But if you do it all the time and in an isolation, there's nothing really to be gained. And I think you eventually will hit a roadblock, whether it's being depressed from being isolated or just lack of success because all the ideas are stemming from your own and not in collaboration. So maybe talk about that a little bit because you definitely touched on that in your book. And that was a great quote. Yeah, And I think what you have to realize is that if you have the greatest impact and do your greatest work for everyone listening in it and for you to feel excited and motivated you have to enroll other people in the things that you're doing and you have to get on board with the things they're doing because that gives you scale and leverage, right? And that allows you to do much more. You can only do so much by yourself, right? Some of the work, of course, you have to do by yourself, right? I mean, you have to get something done. But 
You have to yeah. do that. And one of the problems, if you look from an HR perspective, a lot of times is HR was telling a business unit, well, here's what you should be doing. Instead of co-creating with them and looking at the employee experience from the point of view of the person who was in that role or in that business unit or whatever was doing. And so when you don't do that and you don't get other people on board to test things, to get feedback, you can't do great work because you need their help because their perspective that you can't get. And you can't go it alone and figure all these things out because you don't have the time, the resources, mm -hmm. and it's just not possible, right? So across the board, you know, you have to be able to do that. And I would argue now more than ever, that is the requirement. And that is why right now that you're seeing like the HR world as probably being, you know, in the next five, 10 years, it's going to go on another sort of revolution. Like you saw the industrial revolution. Well, now you're seeing the people revolution because technology, Absolutely. technology went through it in a certain level right now. You know, the people part of it does go into technology, but it really did go through a massive transformation, right? And, and you're seeing on people because we're so early on and every organization is a different viewpoint. No one has answers. No one has figured it out because people have used the word culture. People have used the word relationship as so interchangeable, but they didn't really focus on it. They don't really know how to do it, that they're just scrambling all across the board. Whether you're talking about a Fortune 100 company or you're talking about a five-person company. So it's the wild, wild west, I call it right now, out there. And everyone's got an opinion in doing something differently. But when you start talking to people, you start getting down to the same basics that we all want that really never change. You just have, you, this, the challenge is how do we scale that up in an organization in order to meet all these people's needs? But if you don't understand the things that we're talking about, you know, then it's time for you to invest in this area because you will be left behind. Because, you know, I think when we're talking about kids that are in high school now, in order for them to do great work, the requirement for them is going to be to be technical, but also to have these same skill sets. And the people that don't will yeah. be left behind because it'll move so fast that they won't be able to communicate and articulate their own ideas and to tell a story and to work with others across geography, remote workers, transient workers, right? All these things mm -hmm. that are going to be, it's just going, the acceleration is going to get greater, not less. So that means you can't just be super smart. You have to also have, have super communication and super collaboration and super teamwork. That's why I call these skills actually power skills and not soft skills, because you're even seeing more and more today that they're more important than the hard skills itself. Because I can teach you that, but I can't teach you other things yeah. near as fast. So if you have them farther developed, we're way farther ahead than the other way around. And like an example with that would be is for people listening to this, they did a lot of studies and I've seen it with airline pilots and crews and doctors and nurses and other things where they put all-star teams together, right? And they put the best people together versus ones that people could handpick themselves that weren't all-stars, but they knew each other and had worked together. Across every mm -hmm. study you're looking at, bottom line is all the metrics for everything they're doing were higher from the teams that were handpicked and the people were not all A players than the other one, right? And you'll see Google's Project Aristotle. And what you'll find is the number one factor they found for high performance across Google globally in every country was psychological safety was the social connection. Yeah. It was not everything else. Microsoft, if you look at the data there, 
they've done extensive looks at their employee population for people that have gone to great schools, Ivy League versus ones that have gone to community colleges. There's zero performance differences. So it's important to see these things so people don't get this other view that, oh, well, they can do it, but not me. Oh, that really matters, right? All these hard skills that people have. And I'm like, end of the day, you can learn that. Yeah. One, it's it's interesting. You talk about going back all the way to the school system is like, they're really teaching us technical hard skills, whereas the social or the soft skills really come from the interaction with other people. So we need more opportunities for group discussion and group teamwork. And hopefully people play team sports and are involved in band and things like that, where they can collaborate. And I think you talked about the revolution that HR is going through. And I 100% agree. I've just never articulated it the way you did. I think what's happening now is HR is so focused on compliance and doing things by the book, right? But now because of technology and all these other issues, people are so isolated and hiding behind technology and going into doing deep work and very technical thing that they don't know how to collaborate anymore. So I think what HR needs to do is they need to invest their time and their resources in training managers to build soft skills of their people. And I don't even think the managers are equipped to do that. So we're just in this like mess right now where (laughs) managers are, they're working managers. They're not even coaching and training their people on how to collaborate. It's, It's insane to me. I mean, you're looking at the data I saw is that, you know, and typical HR managers, and this is larger companies, expect managers to be coaching 30% of the time. And when you look at it, it's down to like 10%. So maybe right, maybe if that. And so you're finding these huge gaps across the board. And the problem is that when you look at the C-suite itself, like you know, when I talk to like executives and people doing that, and like they're they don't get it either. So the thing with HR is they have the knowledge of this that they have to convince the C-suite and the leaders to buy into this. And there's enough data now. You just have to find it and look for it and educate yourself on these things. But you're right. I think they've been pushed down for so long, HR as a profession, that it's in the early stages of people really stepping up and saying, look, like our compensation for what we're getting paid for, the whole industry has to change because we have the most valuable part of this. Because today, if you want to look at it even a higher level and lift this all up, today what happens is, right, you have people, you have a product, and then you have technology. End of the day, the people in the product itself is turned into a service because now you're interacting with your consumers, whether it's B2B or B2C all the time and getting data from them to put back in the product itself, right? Or even the service, right? So really end of the day, it's all becoming one giant service. So the people and their skill sets and these soft skills are absolutely critical for you to make and be as competitive as possible, right? So it comes down to human performance is the business differentiator right now, period, across the board. I mean, and that's a hard concept for people, and they don't know what to do with it because it is such a sea change and a change from before. And the problem is most of the people at the top don't have these skill sets. Yep. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to get to the mental aspect of why people tend not to collaborate and network with people. The social anxiety is really, really high for a lot of people. I feel like I'm very outgoing and social. I'm an introvert, but I do get a little bit of a social anxiety in cases leading up to when I'm going to interact or do a group setting, networking, whatever it may be, or even just a meeting. Like It could be a podcast like this where there's anxiety that I have leading up to it. But once I'm in it, 
it's the best time of my life. You know, I'm feeling energized from this conversation. It's great, but everything leading up to it is why people probably don't do it in the first place. Yeah. So talk about the social anxiety and the role it plays in all this. Well, I think the first thing is you have to fight through these things. Because there's no one that goes, I don't know anyone that doesn't feel exactly what you described before doing something, podcast speaking, I did a feeling going yeah. to a webinar, right? But what you do is you do it in spite of how you feel, right? And I think that's really the differentiator. And that's when you talk to people who are great athletes, like no one feels like Olympic athletes, you hear them working seven days a week to be good at what they do. They do it in spite of how they feel and they work through it because then you get evidence that it's working. And you're going to do more of it. But you can't let the resistance stop you. And the stopping you is usually fear of some kind, right? It's fear of not measuring up. It's fear of what people are thinking of me. It's fear of missing out. It's imposter syndrome, right? There's all of these false narratives we make up in our head about the world around us. And part of this is how our brain is engineered because it's wired for survival. It's not wired to thrive. It's wired to keep us alive. So anytime it senses fight or flight, it's going into a mode of telling us not to do this. That's just the way that we're built, right? That's the way our brain is built and it hasn't changed since caveman days. So you have to understand that biologically this is going on. So you have to actively think about this and fight through it and go to the other side. Because once you get in the emotional brain, you're gonna freak out, right? That's why I tell people when one of the things that I did, to give an example of when I was doing like charity events and meeting people and just trying to think through like how this would really play itself out, is immediately when someone walked in a door, I was standing there or I got a few other people to say hi to them and introduce them to someone else. So what I found was immediately if that would happen and they would have a positive experience and they would get out of their own head, I could start to help them operate at their social maximum for some period of time and they would meet a bunch of people that they would not have met at least a couple of people right so there would be strangers now that at least be some familiarity that they could have some conversations and that would typically lead to other ones so they would have a great time and i had people come back a lot of the times and they would make up stuff and i did have some fun theme stuff like champagne stuff or whatever but that was just like peripheral thing right but it was the fact that once you get out of your own head and you get some evidence, you're more apt to continue doing it. Now, it's short term in that setting because I wasn't teaching them that. They didn't like think it consciously, but it's what occurred. So that's what you have to do in these situations is you have to fight through it to get evidence because then you will continually do more and more as long as you understand the why and there is a strategic thing, reason you're doing all this stuff and there's a why behind it, right? Because otherwise you won't. You'll have a time. That's why people sometimes go out and I'm sure everyone who's listening has had this experience. You've met someone at some point in your life and you feel like after five or 10 minutes, you've known them all your life, right? I mean, you felt like that would be Absolutely, right? yeah. Well, the challenge is you did something in that moment that allowed you to have that. And what you did was you were vulnerable or the other person was vulnerable and then you stair-stepped it and then took some big leaps somewhere along the line. So essentially mm -hmm. what you did in that time was what people normally do in 20 or 30 conversations. Now the problem is that we don't understand what that is, so we can't replicate that. And you have to, because then you can replicate it a lot more. You're not gonna do it every time, but what you'll do is you'll move it farther and further, and then pretty soon, it'll be almost as if 
you were breathing, right? And if you're an introvert or shy person, what that helps you to is that gets all this anxiety and energy and other things going out, right? And it makes it easier. And at work, yep. it makes it much easier to interact with the people around. Because once you put the upfront investment in getting to know them, everything is much easier and smoother overall. And if you say to them, you know what, I just sometimes need to listen to music and do whatever, like then the people around you probably support you and help you in that process, right? Where other people won't because Mm -hmm. you've done something and shown an interest and cared about them. So all these things actually have a way of helping and working us. We just have to lead with them and get out of our comfort zone. And I know that may seem like a trite word, but it really is the case because there's no way of doing the stuff we're talking about unless you actually open your mouth and have real conversations with people. You had a section on developing a personal brand and why that's important. And I think for a lot of people, they'd be like, well, that's a marketing thing. You know, that's for influencers on social media, all that stuff. But like, why is the personal brand so vital to building social wealth and social capital? I think you have to have a plan for what it is and what you want to stand for. Bingo. Yep. I mean, because... I do exercise with clients, and one of them is trying to figure out what top emotions drive them. And it's not necessarily scientific, but once you figure out the emotional drivers that you have, it taps into the rest of them, sort of cascading, right? There's ones that you lead with that actually will lead you to do other things much more. And you've got to figure out what those are, and you've got to put a stake in the ground. Because otherwise, you're just floating around and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you stand for and you don't know what you want and you can't develop things around it and it can't lead anywhere, right? But you've got to do it and you can write and there's a lot of personal branding activities and things and I'm not advocating doing anything in particular, but you can look for things. And my point is do something. You don't have to have it be perfect. But what I found in life is once I do something, it tells me, is that really true? Does that work out or doesn't? And you have to pivot. And you're going to have to pivot all the time anyways. That's life, right? I mean, that's what we all have to do. I do this and I tell people that is to figure out what it is you want to stand for and what really matters to you and start somewhere because you'll end up where you want to be but you got to figure it out. And the only person that can do that is you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you put this area in the book because, you know, I talk about it a lot. I'm actually in marketing within an HR company. So I have a pretty unique role. And I talk about the personal brand a lot and why it's important. I have a set of reasons why I think it's important. But the way you're framing it up makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you're saying like, look, you have like defined a personal brand, you have a plan and people know what to expect out of you. It's almost like in a way, a social contract, like you sort of defined who you are, what your values are, what you stand for. And, and then people know what they're going to get out of you. Ooh, and I think it makes you more approachable. And it's just people connect better, I think. Yeah. And then I think what it does is that it helps you figure out things such as your career, as your purpose, because one of the things that's happening now is people are so overwhelmed with everything going around them and they're not sure they're doing the right thing. And FOMO, the fear of missing out hits in. And so this happens across the board with everyone. I mean, higher level people too. And some of that time that manifests in imposter syndrome, right? 
So it happens across the board. So you have to make some decisions on what's really important to you and where you're going to invest in because it's either conscious or unconscious. I mean, because people have perception of every person listening to this, right? If you go to people that you work with on your team or other people and you ask them, what three things do they think about you? They'll write it. They, they'll come up with three things. So whether you want it or not, people have a perception of you right now and they have brand value attributes that they attest and that they attribute to you. So do you want to own it? Yeah. Right? It's kind of like Brene Brown says, <laughs> exactly. you can own your story and you can write the ending or you can give it to other people to do it for you. And they're going to write your narrative. And you're going to be... I'd rather write my autobiography it's personally. Right? Rather, you want to be a character, be a yeah, you be a character in someone else's story or do you want to be the author of yours? And we have, you know, a lot of these things come down to it. And, you know, trust me, people listen to this, like, I had to learn all these things too. Like, it's a process to get through this, but you have to start somewhere. Because if you do, yeah, you can make massive progress in a very short period of time. This is not like, oh, I've got to spend years before I see anything, right? I mean, you can do all these things and see results in seven days or less, right? And they'll keep getting mm -hmm. greater and greater. And then you'll have some magical moment, you know, within the first few months that will really crystallize all these things for you. And then it's, mm -hmm. then you're off to the races and then there's like a world ahead of you that you're going to uncover that's going to just create things you could have never imagined. Like the hardest thing in anything mm -hmm. in life is taking the first step. Yeah. And I think one thing I'd want to caution people on with the personal brand is, is one thing to just say you are who you are, what you value, and it's another thing to oh, do I it. So agree. I think walking the talks are really important. It's like, okay, here's what my values are. Here's what I stand for. And here's what I said I'm going to do for you. I'm going to create value for you. And if you don't follow through, people are going to see right through Yeah. That. And then I think what happens is then you feel like more of an imposter. So it actually undermines you, right? Yeah. So you have to decide it and then live with it. And if you pick three things, for instance, and then you look at that, then the thing I'm doing it is in seven days and two weeks and three weeks saying, okay, well, what do I think about that? Is that really what I want or not? And you can change it. And you can change back too, right? I mean, it's not like it's some permanent thing. But if you have it, and if you say to yourself, well, I don't even know what three to pick. Well, then here's what you do. You find people that you work with or people that you're close to and say, well, what three things do you think about me when it comes to personal attributes, right? And write it down and have them do it. I'd probably pick, I mean, you can pick like four to six. I'd probably pick closer to 10 because you get more data on it, right? And then look and see what are the commonalities, what are the similarities, and that might help you as well, right? Or that might also help wake you up to see this is how people are seeing me. Is that how I want to be viewed? Let's end our conversation with this. We're out of time, but I want to make sure that people leave this conversation with some action items. What are some really easy ways to build social capital? And I imagine that there's like really quick things that you could do in interactions, or whether it's questions that you ask people. I mean, your book literally has this all mapped out. So maybe pick a few of your yeah, favorites. Yeah, so I would say that one... Not all of them. If the people that you work with, I would start to get to know them. And you can download my card game, Cards Against Mundanity. And there's tons of questions on there. But questions such as, what are you most excited about in your life right now? Right? What's the most important lesson you've learned in the last year? If you had to say thank you to one person for helping you become the person you are, who is it and what did they do, right? I mean, questions like that to ask people and then share back. And it's even more powerful when you do this in a group 
But I would start to network, go out and meet other people. And it's more important to ask them a question like, what are you most excited about in your life right now? Because people do that or what brought you to this organization or what gets you excited about coming to it, right? And that will help you understand the organization, the people, not what are you doing? Like, what's your job? What's your role? Because those are common questions and people then just zone you out. You have to ask them questions that haven't been asked before because you require them to be focused on you. So those things I would do, I would practice these, these soft skills, right? And the questions and doing them with other people. The other thing I would do because it's the holidays and it's a great thing is to do some grateful and gratitude things, right? And how you do that is you might get someone a card at work or a few people and say, thank you share with them why you're thanking them and the impact that they make. You don't even need to talk to them. You can write it on a card. I'll even make it easier. You can even text them, right? You could do that with your team. You could do it with other people around you, right? I mean, those are some easy examples because we think the key thing as human beings is we have to get some evidence. And if you get some evidence that those things are working and they're going better for you, then you know that there's a lot more you can do and you're just cracking the door open to what's really possible for you and your life. Jason Troy, you're the author of Social Wealth, How to Build Extraordinary Relationships by Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Lead, and Network. Excellent job on the book. Loved our discussion. Thanks for coming on. I also want to shout out your book. I believe it's on Amazon yeah. Unlimited. So if you're a subscriber there, it's free You know, as part of subscription. So that's how I read it. Short read, uh, a lot of practical information in there that you can easily take to work, your home life, whatever. What else do you want to say before we part ways? Well, you can go get my card game, Cards Against Mundanity, at cardsagainstmundanity.com. And you can get, there's a free version, and then there's a paid card version. And then if you want to go more resources or check some more things out, you can check out my website, jasontreu.com. Thanks, Jason. 